John Howard was an 18th century gentleman. This episode, we're going to start by jumping back 250 years. In 1773, John Howard became High Sheriff of Bedfordshire. One of the duties as High Sheriff was to inspect prisons. What he found was uh, quite shocking. People were in the local jails. They were often sent there for debt, and of course they couldn't get out because they couldn't pay their debts. And they were filthy, they were rife with cholera and typhoid. And what he noticed was that the disease would often seep out into the wider community. But he, he famously got health legislation passed to try and solve health problems in, in prisons. It was the first time that had, that had happened. It didn't make a huge difference, but it was the start of, a, of 200 years of, of change in prisons. Before his passing, which ironically came after he caught typhus fever at a prison visit, John Howard managed to start a key discussion around prison health reform. He's credited with bringing in single cells in order to prevent the spread of diseases throughout the prison population. But what about now? What about modern day prisons? How does the coronavirus threaten their populations? And should we be releasing inmates early? Prisons are, are very unhealthy places. So you still have prisons which are, of course, very grossly overcrowded. Prisons are full of people who have mental health problems, who have underlying physical health problems. The people that until they were swept off the streets, that we were all stepping over on the streets, are people who've been in prison almost entirely. They have addictions, they have heart problems, they have obesity or, or whatever. Um, so prisons are full of people who are very fragile, physically and mentally, and then there's no ventilation. <laughs> and it's not good, really not good. This is Unjust, a Justice Gap podcast. I'm Callum McRae. Pandemics are, by their nature, global. So how are different international jurisdictions dealing with this crisis, facing an incarcerated population of over 10 million people? In this episode, I tried to get a clearer picture of the varied responses. First stop is, of course, the UK. My name is Frances Crook. I'm Chief Executive of the Howard League for Penal Reform. The Howard League campaigns for change in the criminal justice system, seeks to reduce the overuse of prisons and strives to create safer communities. The current pandemic poses a significant threat to prisoners. Well, prisons are very like care homes. And as we know, enclosed environments with people who are inherently unhealthy or have underlying health problems, you, you have a, a dangerous and toxic mix there. So what has been going on here in the UK to stem that risk? Well, let's jump back a month or so. Public Health England then recommended that in order to safeguard prisoners and prison staff, 15,000 inmates needed to be released early. The Ministry of Justice itself accepted the need to lower the population, announcing that up to 4,000 prisoners were to be sent home as part of an early release scheme. What's your idea of what's actually happened? Because from my research, it seems quite difficult to get an actual figure. I saw 33 kind of banged yes. about. Um, but I don't know, what, what, what's your idea of what's going on? Well, it does look that the official figure that I think that was what was reported to the Justice Select Committee is I think 33 people, of whom about half have been women, either pregnant or with, with babies. So yes, I mean, it's, it's parsimonious to say the least. 
and, and disappointing because usually when, when ministers announce something, something that could be unpopular, what they normally do is underreport it. They say, we're going to do this, but it's, but it's all right, it's okay, it's not as big as you think it is. This time it was the opposite. Ministers reported something, overinflated, everybody got very excited and then they didn't do it. Now, I recorded this conversation with Francis a week ago and a week in lockdown seems paradoxically both a very short and a very long time. The most up-to-date figure I have is closer to still only 100 inmates freed. The plan initially looked in jeopardy as it was suspended after six inmates were wrongly freed, then recalled to prison in a chapter that resembled an episode of The Thick of It. However, the reasonable worst-case scenario that up to 3,500 prisoners may die from COVID-19 has appeared not to have materialised. There's no doubt this should be celebrated. We were very worried that, that there, were, there were going to be a significant number of deaths, that people were going to die from the virus. In the end, as I say, it looked as though there were actions taken which would protect life. That's welcome and that's good. And I think that's because people are basically locked up virtually solitary confinement almost all the time. And that, that you know, that action to to put people essentially in, in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day or or longer that is that sustainable in the long term because I, this is going to be a long-term thing i guess it's not going to go away until you've got a vaccine or some some successful treatment um can we sustain that that level of lockdown in prisons that's absolutely right i don't think so and i think there's going to come a point where prisons particularly as the summer gets hotter uh, people aren't going to be able to get out. Many of those prison cells are pretty disgusting when it gets hot. You can imagine there's something the size of a, a you know, public toilet. You've got two people in it with a toilet. Often it doesn't flush very well. Uh, it may not be very clean. With virtually sealed windows, there's hardly any ventilation. It can get pretty smelly and pretty fetid, pretty unpleasant. I think it could be quite dangerous if they can't get people out at all. They've got nothing to do. So far, for about three months, they kind of held a lid on it, but it's pretty risky, I think. Young men in particular are going to get fed up. When you let people out, they're going to go a bit stir-crazy. So it's, it's quite frightening, I think. And that really is why the Howard League and the government itself recognises the importance of reducing the prison population. If this continues for months, draconian, albeit understandable, measures like lockdown inside are unsustainable. While there has been an overall drop in the UK's prison population, that appears to be mainly due to jury trials being suspended. With their resumption imminent, it's feared that the population will go up again, and if there's a second spike, then the threat to prisoners still remains. That's why countries like Portugal, Ireland, Cyprus and Turkey have actively released significant portions of overall inmates. Indeed, even Iran, which arguably pays little regard for the health and the rights of prisoners, has reportedly freed 100,000 prisoners early or on temporary licence as a direct response to the outbreak. Okay, my name is Iraj Mestari and I was 10 years in prison during 80s from uh, 1981 to nine, uh, 1991. Iraj Mestari experienced the most notorious Iranian prisons. He told me that he shared a four metre squared cell with 21 other inmates. You cannot stop. There is no enough room just to stand up. 
there is not enough room to stand up. You, Twenty-two percent cannot stand up on that space. When we wanted to sleep, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. It was this overcrowding, Iraj told me, that allowed the massacre of an estimated 30,000 political prisoners in the late 80s. He says things have moved on somewhat from those days, but the people in charge now have previously been responsible for heinous crimes. You, you see, there is some difference. Of course there is. You know why? Because 40 years is fast. And it doesn't mean that it's better. In Iran, you see, we are talking about the bunch of murderers. It's not because I'm against them, you know, it's not because I was a political prisoner. I have seen even those who are now very important figures in judiciary, they were torturers. I've seen them. I mean, the deputy of judiciary now, Mr. Mohseni Ejei, I have seen him, he was a torturer. How come a torturer can be the head of judiciary? You cannot find it anywhere. After surviving the massacre of 88, Iraj escaped to Sweden, where he spent years studying the Iranian judiciary and worked extensively with the UN on human rights issues in the country. He told me Iran faces two big problems in preventing the pandemic reaching prisons. One of them is because it's overcapacities, one of the problems. But the, the other one is the way they are thinking about that. You know, there's something, I mean, some problem here because they don't, I mean, they don't think about human beings. They don't think they are human. They don't need that. They, they are. This is the problem. That second problem is much harder to change. Mistreatment of prisoners, political or not, is entrenched in their system. But at least they've attempted to reduce that capacity. Well, simply put, Iraj doesn't believe those reports. So, so, so the government saying they've released uh, up to a hundred thousand is you don't you don't believe that? No, I don't. This is the propaganda. And and what would they what would they get out of that? What's that? What do you think their mission in telling the world they've freed a hundred thousand people in response to coronavirus? What? Why? Why would they do that? You know, they want to say that we are we care about the people, and they do, and they act better than Western countries. They are saying now. You know, they said how many people were uh, released in Britain, in France? 1,000? 2,000? 100,000. Okay, who are they? You see? No. He drew my attention to the continual denial of responsibility for the shooting down of a Ukrainian Airlines plane in January. And he added the general death rate in the country is illogical when compared with other countries with far superior healthcare provisions. Essentially, he says, the Iranian government has the propensity to fudge the figures. I put it to Francis that perhaps politics could be playing a part in the UK's decision not to release more prisoners early. Why, why, do, you, why do you think that is? is do, you, do you think that's political, that they, that they don't want to be seen to be relaxed on crime or, you know, they don't want to be seen to be releasing prisoners? Do you think it's that or do you think it's something else? I, I think that that's it. I think there's debates going on between the Ministry of Justice and Number 10 Downing Street and I don't know where the blockage is because these are people who are going to be released anyway. So it wasn't as if they were going to release people who weren't going to be released. These are people who have been risk assessed 
who were going to be released in the next few months and it was only a question of releasing them a few weeks early. So it was nothing dramatic that was going to happen and yet I, I don't know where the blockage or where the cowardice came from because it is cowardice. The UK government committed last week to creating a further 10,000 prison places at the cost of £2.5 billion. Perhaps the inaction then stems from the fact that we appear to be wedded to the idea of imprisonment. I mean, about 60,000 people go into prison every year, sent into prison every year for a short prison sentence. Now, the, there is robust evidence that the Ministry of Justice itself published and is on the Ministry of Justice website showing that sending somebody to prison for a short period, like for like, is damaging, it makes things worse. It damages prisons because it creates part of the overcrowding. It means that people are going in and out, so it brings disease into prisons. It also doesn't solve the, the person's problem. It, it creates more crime. They're more likely to commit more crimes than if you've given them a community sentence. And yet, we know this is not working. There's clear evidence. The Ministry of Justice knows it's not working, yet they keep doing it. Hi, Maddie. Hi, how's the sound? Give me a second. Headphones aren't plugged in. How, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Um, I'm Maddie Delone and I moderate the UCLA COVID-19 in prison project pages about releases in jails, in adult jails and prisons in the United States. The UCLA Behind Bars project tracks COVID-19 conditions in jails and prisons and the efforts to decrease jail and prison populations and improve conditions to ensure the safety of residents and staff. For the previous 16 years, Maddie was the executive director at the Innocence Project in New York. I think most people believe that maintaining physical distance in a congregate, in a group facility like a prison, is very difficult under the best of circumstances, and almost no place in the country is set up in the best of circumstances. So every facility needs to depopulate if they were going to achieve any social distancing within the facility. And then I think the second reason that people in this country and probably around the world called for this particular release of older people and people with underlying medical conditions is that if they got sick, the potential consequences for them were even graver in terms of potential death and serious illness. That was a problem for them as human beings and part of our larger community. It was also going to be a problem in the facilities which often have limited health services and if they got strapped with many people with significant medical needs, their ability to take care of the entire population would be, you know, severely compromised. The threat is particularly stark in the US, where they imprison more people than anywhere else on Earth. At the very beginning of the epidemic in the U.S., uh, when public statements started to be made, probably middle of March, toward the end, middle and end of March, there were calls from many in the advocacy community, as well as the public health community, for reducing the populations of these facilities as much as they could be reduced. Jails in the U.S. are where inmates are held pre-trial if they can't make bail, or if their sentence is less than a year. Prison is generally reserved for those serving sentences of longer than a year. 
in prisons across the country, you know, most have not released very many people. North Dakota is apparently the single exception that really rises up an 18% reduction since probably the end of February or certainly since the end of December of last year. And they seem to have released a lot of people and and also, you know, many prison systems don't accept people. So you're seeing population reductions in prisons in America at more like the 5% across the, the system than anything dramatic. Jails, on the other hand, have seen a more marked reduction in numbers. The median jail reduction in the US, according to the Prison Policy Initiative, is at 31%. So why the difference? I think in general... You know, prisons are, are filled with people who have been sentenced. So there is a distinction in people's minds, I imagine, between people who have not yet been convicted of a crime and people who have been. So that's a distinction. Maybe it's easier politically to release people who haven't yet been convicted because they're innocent and why should they be in, put in harm's way? And I, and I do think people hold on to these notions, these narratives around, you know, people who have done bad things. And that gets in our way of reacting humanely and following public health guidance about what's in the best interest of people and the community. I think those in, in America, you mentioned when we started, we have the highest rate of incarceration and incarcerate more people than anybody, any other country in the world. So we've spent a long time developing narratives around locking people up and it's hard to get away from that, particularly in a time of crisis. Again, perhaps politics seeps into our varied responses. Very discouraging that prisons in general in this country haven't done it for several reasons. One is that they just are filled with people, so it's very discouraging. But they also are filled with more older people and therefore people with many health conditions. And so in some ways, the people inside those facilities are even more at risk. And the fact that we won't and can't and don't seem to be able to take care of them is uh, really the most discouraging thing that we're seeing, that I think we're seeing in all of this. And the fear of vast, uncontrollable outbreaks in prisons and jails has been well-founded in some instances. I will say that we only know how much COVID there is in facilities when it's reported, and there is not uh, a lot of systematic testing of everyone who is uh, in a jail or a prison. They, they tested people who they thought were positive, so they were largely positive. But we didn't test people that were asymptomatic. And we know people are positive who don't have symptoms. So exactly what's going on inside, I don't think we know. But a lot of spread has gone around the facility. Certainly, you know, places like Rikers Island, Cook County, jails. That pe people describe very high rates. You know, Louisiana has reported them. Elkton, Ohio, a federal prison has reported very high levels. I'm sure they're you know, 20 or 30 or 40 that people know about where the rates are known to be very, very high. Whilst New York City, which has been devastated by the outbreak, was starting to announce a flattening of the infection rate, Rikers Island, the city's most notorious jail, had an infection rate almost five times higher. 
As inmates come and go in jails over short periods of time, there remains the threat that they could become the source of new outbreaks in the future. The fewer people in these institutions, naturally fewer people will get infected. Back in the UK, prisoners and prison staff have been roundly commended for their patience and cooperation in the lockdown. And there's apparently been positive work to make the whole experience easier to deal with. But 23 to 24 hours a day in lockdown can have profound effects on mental health, physical health and any attempt at rehabilitation. I mean, there's nothing going on in prisons at all. There's just nothing. There's no work. There's no programs. There's there's nothing happening at all. It is simply a warehouse. It is like an Amazon warehouse with and just treating people as if they were cardboard boxes. Staff don't want to run prisons like this. There is nothing happening at all. And that is not what a civilised prison system should be about at all. According to prisons inspectors, even children at some young offenders institutions were only allowed out of their cells for 40 minutes a day. If uh, COVID uh, takes hold of a prison, it is very difficult to contain and to manage. Yeah, I'm Peter Severin. I'm the Commissioner of Corrective Service New South Wales. With the caveat that international comparisons are perhaps reductionist in mind, I was struck when I heard that Australia has had zero cases of COVID in prisons and the draconian measures we have in place here haven't been emulated there. From a prison's perspective, um, we went in very early and actually, I have to say, quite hard and decisively. And in many ways, I have to say that is the single most logical reason as to why we have so far been able to remain COVID positive free in our prison system. So what measures have they put in place? We immediately stopped social visits. And while that sounds very harsh, it was actually quite welcome by prisoners and visitors alike because there was a real concern about the, the risk of being infected. We introduced other measures such as quarantining. Uh, every prisoner who comes into the system new uh, undergoes a two-week quarantining period. Any new prisoner has only been allowed to mix with those who arrived on the same day. Uh, so it's not total isolation. It's quite different to what we call isolation. It's quarantining really for safety purposes. It's really about making sure that we control who gets into a prison. That includes our staff. So we've introduced thermal imaging. What they haven't done is release prisoners early, but they have brought in technology to help prisoners in the absence of visitors. We've introduced video visits very quickly. So they get a tablet, uh, a little iPad style tablet, where they can actually, using this very platform, Zoom, connect with their families. And in many ways, that's been amazing because we have been able to connect across countries. You know, previously, if we have a prisoner from China, that person would not be able to get a visit. Now they can. The tablet actually gives the prisoners the opportunity to see the bedrooms of their children, uh, to, to see the dog that they might have not seen for the last two or three years. And that type of social engagement is, is quite amazing. I mean, all the technology stuff has been quite outstanding. Of course, Australia has had significantly fewer cases of coronavirus than the UK. The US prison system has a far higher population than the UK, so international comparisons are of limited value then, especially when you consider the potential inaccurate figures. But what is important is learning and communicating on an international sphere. 
I've never seen in my almost 40 years of career within the corrective services systems in Germany, in two states, in, in Australia, and now in New South Wales, so in four different jurisdictions, people coming together so far, so readily willing to share, and so effectively doing that. And in my other role as the president of the International Corrections and Prisons Association, um, we have done that at a global reach. You know, we have brought together a forum of practitioners and academics and others to literally share practice because this is uncharted territory. I'll, I'll just finish. I, I think I think I've covered most of my my questions. I, what's what's your biggest fear going forward now? If you if you had to kind of verbalize what what you're most worried about in prisons i think my biggest fear in inside prisons is people's mental health and well-being that prolonged periods of isolation a complete isolation is very damaging to your mental health particularly if you are already quite fragile and i would worry about self-injury and suicide rates in the long term, we know that suicide anyway is a real problem in prisons. Somebody before the being locked up took their own life every couple of days in, in, a, in prisons. That might, is my worry, that the long-term damage we've done by keeping people in isolation will have ramifications, not just immediately when it all eases, but maybe for years to come, that we will find the self-injury and the suicide rate amongst former prisoners will go up for years to come. That is my real worry. This was a Justice Gap podcast produced by me, Callum McRae, again with help from Axa Hussein. Please do us a massive favour by sharing, recommending it to your friends and rating us on your podcast platform. The original music was produced by Ed Starkey.